electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome, everybody. I am Brian Sullivan. And for Kelly again, here's what's ahead on The Exchange. Forget about September's bad history stocks. They're higher again. That is the fourth straight day. So what do you buy in this environment? Growth or value? Well, why choose? We're going to hear from somebody who says you can get both. Plus, Uber on the upswing. Shares surging since July and on deck. You're going to hear from the CEO live. Food delivery, self-driving, labor issues. Tons to talk to Dara about. And good news, new signs inflation may be slowing, at least for some things. We're going to hit how inflation will change this holiday season. Yep, we're already talking Christmas. All that is ahead, but let's open the show with another gift. Oh, Dom Chu. Brian Sullivan, you're a nice guy, you know that. It, 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 it is, and, and it is a gift every time I get to fill in for you on the early show. So is it? I am still here, but it's the end of my day-ish. <laughs> I'm going to give you the market update right now. The Dow Industrial is up at about 211 points. It's just near the highs of the session. Not exactly just there yet, but the S&P 500 is above 4,100, 4,103, 36 points to the upside, nearly 1% gains there and 1% gains for the Nasdaq Composite, 120 points to the upside, 12,232, the last trade there. If you take a look at where else there is activity right now, it has been in that beaten up energy patch. Oil and gas, WTI U.S. benchmark crude prices, $87.68. It's not a lot, but it's green. 1% to the upside there. Energy stocks are bid as a result. 1.7% gains for the energy sector, Spider, ticker XLE. APA Corp on exploration and production. Devon Energy, that same kind of group there, up anywhere from 35 to 4.5% right now. Hess on the more integrated side, up 3.5% there. So watch energy. It has been beaten up, but getting a little bit of a bounce today. And one other place where a lot of investors are starting to look at more closely, mega cap technology, especially the biggest one out there in the NASDAQ 100 and the S&P. That's Apple. $5.59 to the upside there, $162 and change, up 3.5%. This is session highs for the stock. And the reason why it's important, because at this level right here, we are now above the 50-day average price on a rolling basis and the 200-day average price on a rolling basis. So some folks saying maybe that's bullish. Remember, it was a 36% move to the upside here for Apple off those summer lows. We are now down about 7% from those highs that we've just seen. So, Brian, watch Apple. It could be an indicator for the rest of the market. We'll see what happens. Back over to you. Apple and oil. Tom Chu, thank you very much. All right, stocks rallying on hopes that inflation maybe has peaked and the Fed will be a little less hawkish. But your next guess says... The decline in headline inflation is not enough for the Fed to deviate from its path of aggressive rate hikes. He is sticking to stocks with value and growth, but only at a reasonable price. So let's call this interview the world according to GARP. Joining us now is Bill Stone, chief investment officer of the Glenview Trust Company. Growth at a reasonable price. GARP. I mean, it sounds like an easy concept. Is it easy to find stocks that fit those metrics? At the moment, I think it, it is fairly easy. You know, we, we've got such a bifurcated market with, you know, some of the high flyers with, frankly, no earnings. So you can't really call those Garpy. Uh, and then you've got, you know, maybe some really, really cyclical ones or, you know, things that just aren't growing or are just dividend plays. So you're trying to hit right in the middle. But 
like I said, you're actually, I think, because of the sell-off, you know, since the beginning of the year, you're able to scour through and find some things that I think over the long term will grow, but yet you're not paying some outrageous price for. Yeah, and let's get into some of those, because when I hear about a stock or a company that has never in its history as a public company traded at that low of a valuation, kind of the radar goes off. That's actually what's happened to Meta Platforms, a.k.a. Facebook. It's gotten just destroyed this year, but you like it. I do. I mean, I think you got to live through, you know, I think of it as a, you know, a brand that goes through a tough time. I think back in the days of buying McDonald's when there was Mad Cow and everyone decided no one was going to go to McDonald's again. Um, Meta's in one sense easier in the sense that they still haven't seen user counts fall. So I would start to get worried if you had users falling. But I think a lot of the issues are, you know, I think it, they're well known, right? TikTok is eating some of their lunch in terms of, you know, eyeballs spending more time there. Uh, and then also some of the Apple privacy changes. But in the long run, it is a social network company. But in the long run, really, it's an advertising company, right? So if they have the eyeballs, I truly believe the earnings will follow. So um, I think that one is, you know, at, like you said, the lowest valuation since it came public. You know, again, you're going to probably have to suffer for a while. I have no idea when the turn comes, but yeah. I think you're going to get rewarded. Yeah, you just wonder if they've lost their focus from Facebook to Meta and all the virtual reality stuff. Maybe people don't like it. We'll see. Um, don't drink and go in virtual reality, I guess. But we're going to combine the two here because it's safe. Anheuser-Busch, Bud, you kind of view this as a safe investment. I do. You know, they're, you know, amazing brands, right? You know, you, everyone knows the Budweiser. You got Stella Artois. Um, you got Corona outside of the U.S. Uh, so phenomenal global brands, biggest brewer in the world. What's really, you know, you might say, well, then why is their stock so cheap? Well, the problem is input costs are very expensive uh, right now for really beer makers in general. Um, the good news is Anheuser-Busch being the biggest has the most leverage to, to really deal with that, but it's still crimping their profits at the moment. Um, you know, phenomenal franchises around the globe. So if you think eventually you'll see some relief from that, and I think you will, uh, obviously I think earnings will in fact then rebound and you're getting it, you know, again, a great branded company that yeah. I would also mention is, is recession resistant. And we just do not see alcohol consumption going down during recessions. You know, you might trade down from, uh, you know, Bud to uh, uh, to something else, uh, Bush or something, um, but you typically keep drinking. Maybe some of us drink more uh, if it's a bad enough market. You get the pops and the hops, as we might say there. <laughs> uh, no, I would, I would never say that. Bill, the last one is a company at 12 times earnings, pays a nice dividend, is you know, I guess you could say is a franchise leader in many parts of a massive market and yet also tends to not get a lot of love. And that is Wells Fargo. But this is a company, let's be clear, that has had about 100 sort of scandals and problems, it seems like, in the last yeah. 10 years. They couldn't get out of their own way. You're willing to take the flyer on the Fargo. Yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, it's a hard company to love. I guess I've kind of picked at least two out of the three that are hard to love at the moment. Um but you're right. So, I mean, new management. So you've got Sharf there as CEO. Um, you know, they're focusing, I think, on what they need to, which is, you know, cutting costs because the Fed has them constrained, at least for now, on asset growth. That'll eventually come off. But you're dealing with, again, like you said, a franchise where one of the largest deposit bases in the country, also the way they're set up, uh, they are very interest rate sensitive. In other words, interest rates moving higher uh, benefits their earnings. And I think I like that in this kind of environment that we think 
that might be the place. They're well capitalized, so I'm not going to lose sleep uh, if, in fact, we go into a recession next year. Wells Fargo, Anheuser-Busch, and I'm going to still call them Facebook. Bill Stone, (laughs) pleasure to have you on. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right. The good news on inflation is that the price of gasoline has come down recently. But you probably care more about your house than your car. And if you're in the market for a house, there's some bad news. Mortgages are at 6% or even higher, depending on your credit. And as home affordability goes down, buyers are balking, which is sending new mortgage applications to four-year lows. Let's talk more about housing with Andy Walden. He's the vice president of enterprise research at Black Knight, Andy, I got your latest release last week, and I kind of had to do a double take on some of the numbers. They're not good. Yeah. yeah. I mean, whether you're looking at prices or you're looking at volumes, both have been pulling back a little bit. I mean, if you look at the number of folks out there locking in rates to buy a home, down 30% from last year, second month below pre-pandemic levels, lowest August since 2017, and you're starting to see prices come off those peak levels as well. We've said this stat a few times, but I think it bears repeating for the folks in the back. The reality is about 90 percent, according to Ivy Zellman and some others, about 90 percent of all American mortgages are what? Below 5 percent, 80 percent or below 4 percent. So if you're thinking about moving and you're looking at a 6 percent mortgage, you're sitting on a 4 percent mortgage and the house is more expensive that you want to buy. I can see why buyers are balking. You get smacked twice. Yeah. And you're seeing sellers balk out there in the market as well for that exact same reason, right? They're locked into low rates. But I think a lot of folks are also tied into some of those prices that were being paid in March, April and May of this year and trying to understand, was that a mirage? Was was that reality or those true comparables in the market? And so I think they're looking at their own rate. They're looking at the prices they could have gotten a, a few months ago. And you're certainly, especially in that August data, you're starting to see some of those sellers also balking at the market. You saw inventory growth at uh, roughly a tenth the rate that it had been, according to our collateral analytics data over the last three months. So you're seeing buyers priced out. You're seeing sellers balk a little bit, and that means lower transaction volumes. That means prices coming off peak a little bit as well. That's That sounds like a bad combination, Andy. I mean, yeah. where, 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 where does the data suggest this might be heading? I mean, if you look at the latest data, right, and we're looking at that kind of real-time optimal blue rate lock data coming out of the market, you're seeing, one, you're seeing refinances, as we all expect, to continue to trend downward. You're seeing that purchase lock volume continue to trend downward as well. And each each month, they keep coming lower. We also just, again, got our uh, our monthly snapshot of, of that collateral analytics data that's kind of the, the daily stock ticker of what's going on in the market. Median price per square foot is down 4%. Uh, from where it was the last few months. So each each set of numbers that's been coming out, prices have been edging a little bit lower, transaction volumes edging a little bit lower as well. If we see mortgages cap out here, the Fed may keep raising rates, the bond market could move, but the mortgage market lags and maybe a lot of the bond markets already priced in expectations. So let's say let's say mortgage rates, this is the peak. Does the market then, you think, fix itself or is this level? I mean, it has to come down. Well, I mean, the way that it fixes itself is is one of three ways, right? It, it waits for incomes to grow to kind of normalize and, and kind of bring us back into balance. We would need 40% income growth at where prices are right now what? to get us back to a norm-term 40? level of affordability. 40%, 40% income growth. Or zero, yeah. Or interest rates coming down closer to that 3 to 4% range or prices continuing to pull back, right? So I think it's one of those three things that brings us into balance. But the market just simply... Where prices and incomes are at right now, it's just simply not built for a 6% rate environment. And that's that's what you're seeing take place out there. You're seeing the market choke on those 6% rates based on where incomes are right now and where, where home prices are right now. I don't know how old you are, Andy. You look young. 
I'm old enough to remember when, when 6% was low. Right. I, mean, I, remember, that, I remember hitting 6 and I'm not that old. I'm not 180 years old. I remember when the 6% of the downs, oh, we're at 6%. Good news. Right. How do yeah, we get into that? How do we get into this? Why is it now that 6% is doom for the housing market? Right. And we're having that conversation more and more. I've already had that conversation this morning as well. And, and you're absolutely right. If you just look at interest rates themselves, 6% is low historically, right? So that is true. What's also true is that home prices will normalize themselves based on interest rates. So if you look at what's happened over the last five yeah. years, interest rates coming down 3% means your buying power goes up 30 to 40%. And you'd like to think homeowners put that money in their pocket and they're saving it and they're doing well. What they do is go out there and bid up home prices, right? So we've seen home prices rise by 60% over the last five years, four times what we've seen in income growth. Yeah. And now we simply can't get back to that that normal level. But I, right? I do want to end on not, not a doom and gloom note. There are a lot of buyers out there that are all cash. And they, don't are. Care, they don't care about interest rates. A lot of all-cash buyers, and I think there's a lot of buyers waiting in the wings that may be priced out for the moment that could make their way back yeah. in, right? I think millennial buyers and, and on down the line. So I think there is a good backstop there. Just a lot of those folks are priced out where we sit at the moment. Andy Wall and the Black Knight, appreciate it, I think. Thank you. Andy, thanks. <laughs> appreciate it. All right, on deck. Is it too early to talk about Black Friday and holiday shopping? Of course not, especially if inflation threatens to eat into consumer spending. Former SAC CEO Steve Sato will join us next with his expectations. Plus, Uber shares on track for the longest monthly winning streak in more than a year. What is driving that turnaround? We'll speak exclusively with Uber CEO Derek Khosrowshahi. The Exchange is back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Summer. The best time of year usually doesn't come with a great deal. Soaring temperatures come with soaring prices. But what if there's another way? With IKEA, your summer plans can last longer than two weeks of vacation and be more affordable. Here, everyone can have lounge chair access, no reservations needed. From affordable outdoor furniture to stylish accessories, we have all the essentials you need to soak up summer in style, no matter the size of your space. Start planning a better summer with IKEA. It's your outdoor dreams inside your budget. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. All right, welcome back to The Exchange. Hope you're having a good Monday. Let's talk about Christmas and the holiday shopping season. Because even with gasoline prices coming down a bit, overall inflation is likely to hit retail spending. Even Santa Claus is not immune to higher prices. According to the MasterCard Spending Pulse annual holiday forecast, some of the season's retail growth will be pulled forward in October as consumers, they hunt for the early deals. Joining us now with more on this is Steve Sato. He's the former CEO of Saks, a senior advisor at MasterCard, a guy who's probably forgotten more about retail than most of us knew. Steve, it's good to have you back on. What does that mean? It means we got to get our Christmas shopping and, and, and Hanukkah shopping, holiday shopping done in October? No, I don't know that you have to do it in October. There's going to be plenty of product out there, but it is going to be an early holiday season. The MasterCard forecast is for 7% growth on the holiday season. 
Now, remember, inflation is tracking into that kind of level so that we've got relatively flat unit growth. But it says that the consumer is relatively healthy. Look at the month of August, for example, retail sales were up in the 11 percent range. So overall, we talk about a consumer that's being hit by inflation, the low end consumer starting to slow. But consumers are still shopping, but they're shopping differently. And that's to me what's uh, most important. E-commerce was the story during the pandemic. Now people are getting back into stores. Stores are growing faster than uh, e-commerce. Now, e-commerce is still 50 percent, 75 percent bigger than it was pre-pandemic. But people are out there shopping. When people have tried to bet against the American consumer, Steve, as you know, they've just the history is littered with analysts who've lost their shirts on that. Americans love to shop and they love to shop in stores because it's something to do. It's it's a thing. Right. And it may not be as much of a thing as it was. But having been to a mall recently, it was packed. Yeah, I think that the real story is the consumer wants to shop anywhere, anytime they want to shop. And that means online, in a store, buy online, pick up in store. And during the pandemic, they were constrained. So they had to shop online. Now they're getting back into their in-store behavior. But I think that what's happening is you're having a lot of winners and losers and we've gone to extremes. Uh, I don't think we've talked that much about it uh, in terms of, you know, during the pandemic, you had these supply chain constraints. Everybody was buying full price. There was very low inventory. The retailers it, uh, decided they were going to buy a lot more because they didn't know whether when the supply chain would uh, uh, open up. So they had much too much ordered of the things that people were yeah. buying during the pandemic. So you saw the targets and the Walmarts all marking, you know, it talking about much too much inventory, having to mark it down. And now we're in a mode where there's a lot of excess product that's being cleared. The holiday season is still going to be about some of that product product being cleared. The new stuff, the new product, the new fashion, people want, they don't want loungewear, they want to have the sexy fashion to go out. That's going to be selling really well, but the clearance product is going to depress the sales to some degree. But I I would tell you that I think that what's happening is we have too much. Now we're going to the other extreme. So we had all the markdowns. Now everyone's going to be very careful about ordering inventory. Some of them are going to have to because they don't have the cash to buy the inventory because they're still sitting on too much of the clearance product. So their balance sheets aren't strong. Which which then, by the way, not to get all not to get all weird and wonky. But if if your balance sheet is not strong as a retailer, that's a death spiral potentially because, you, as I understand it, please correct me if I'm wrong, you can't get insurance on your inventory. Or well, it's a you, lot you may harder not get or a insurance. lot more expensive yeah. to get the insurance, which then it's is a, this sort of pr- negative cost spiral. Absolutely. It, it's an issue. You've got to uh, get the cash to be able to buy the inventory. There's going to be if you don't have a strong balance sheet, you're not going to be ordering as much inventory. Uh, I think that most of the strong retailers are all going to be perfectly fine, but they are going to start cutting back on their purchases. And you've got to be really careful because you don't want to cut back on the product that everybody wants. So there is a little bit of people are uh, the uh, retailers are being a bit careful coming into new orders into the holiday season because you do have a weakening consumer. You know, even the 7% forecast, which is very healthy, is lower than the 11% growth that we saw in August. So this is a, uh, you know, a, a time when people are being very careful about their spending. Uh, and again, there's a bifurcation. The luxury yeah. side of the market is doing pretty well. 
But I, I do think this issue of interesting about an issue of stores and people wanting to get back in stores. Now what's happening, however, is you have to go to the other extreme where all the DTC companies, the direct-to-consumer companies that grew just based on the Internet, now they're, yeah. because the Internet is not growing as fast, they're opening lots of new stores. So right now, which this would surprise everybody, you have more net new stores, meaning more stores opening minus stores closing than we've had in the last 15 years. That's amazing. So there's a lot of stores opening. Uh, it's, it's good. It's good. It's good for the commercial real estate business probably as well. And by the way, today was recycling day on our street. If I have to cut another box down, I might just continue to go out because all the bo- I love delivery. But holy smokes, the boxes It's just unbelievable. Can't be environmental either. Steve Sato, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Take care. All right, coming up, is Europe's energy crisis coming here to America, at least in part? We'll look at why gas and power prices are likely to pop higher. Plus, new tech always tends to get the headlines, right? But maybe boring is the new sexy when it comes to tech stocks. We'll talk about one of the legacy players, Oracle, with Frank Holland. We come back. Stick around. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. (laughs) That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. (laughs) I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. And welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. The market's right now, solidly in the green. September is usually the worst month of the year for stocks. Not this month. We're on our, what, fourth or fifth straight up day? Dow average up 233 points. Technology outperforming up 1%. Let's get a couple of stocks and ETFs that are on the move. Carvana soaring. This after Piper upgrades the stock to overweight from neutral, saying the company is, quote, grossly undervalued. Well, it's been kind of a gross year for Carvana investors. Stock's down 80% this year, but... Up today, not a gold. Newmont Mining jumping after Goldman Sachs initiates the company with a buy. Goldman analysts saying the underperformance lately marks an attractive entry point for this low-risk miner, their term. All right, speaking of metals, take a look at silver and the silver ETF. Both seeing a nice pop higher. The ETF SLV having its best day since all the way back in February of 2021. In pharmaceuticals, Bristol-Myers jumping. Following the FDA's approval for the company's oral treatment of plaque psoriasis for adults, Stock's up 11% this month, and Bitcoin is moving higher. It is back above 22000 at the highest level since mid-August. Ether, though, that's on the flip side, moving lower ahead of that hotly anticipated software update called The Merge, which we talked about on our special on Friday night. That's a big deal this week. All right, let's get now to Tyler Matheson, another big deal for a CNBC News update. Tyler. Brian, thank you very much. And here's what's happening at this hour. Jeff Bezos's Blue Origin has suffered its first rocket failure. No one was on board, thankfully. About a minute after liftoff, the rocket started to veer off course. The capsules separated and landed in the desert minutes later. Meantime, the U.N. is in discussions with Russia and Ukraine to set up a safe zone around the endangered Ukrainian nuclear power plant. A top official says the countries are showing interest in a deal. Both nations accuse each other of shelling at or near the nuclear facility. In Edinburgh, members of the public are getting a chance to pay their last respects to Queen Elizabeth. Hundreds of people are lined up in London. Uh, Meantime, lines have also formed to see the Queen's coffin, even though 
It won't go on view in London until Wednesday. And outside of Buckingham Palace, some are already staking out spots to watch the Queen's funeral procession. That won't take place until a week from today. On the news with Shep Smith tonight, how Britain is adjusting to its new monarch and what may change under the rule of King Charles III. That's tonight at 7 Eastern. Brian, back to you. All right, Tyler, thank you very much. All right, up next, call it Needham's Laura Martin versus institutional investors. Why she says she is more bearish on Meta and more bullish on Apple than many others. Plus, these stocks seeing the biggest positive momentum shift in the past month. It's your mystery chart. Who could it be? We're going to find out. Coming up. And welcome back to The Exchange. Maybe call this Needham versus Institutional Investors. The firm out with a new note today breaking down some key sentiment shifts among investors in media and technology. And while many investors are in love with companies like Meta and Disney, Needham's Laura Martin says not so fast. Let's bring Laura in. She's Senior Internet and Media Analyst with Needham and Company. Laura, it's nice to see you in the daylight hours. Good to have you. Hello, nice too. Nice to be here. All right. So you're more negative on Meta. I'm gonna, I have to call them Facebook. I'm sorry. But institutions, despite the stock getting, or maybe because the stock's been crushed, seem to love it. What are they getting wrong about Meta? I think what we're worried about the street might be missing is Meta is not only investing in the metaverse, which is a clear pivot from its historical base business, but at the same time, it is reacting to TikTok by lowering its monetization, by by replacing sort of newsfeed with reels, which is its basically knockoff of TikTok, and saying, look, we're going to take a 30% cut in monetization because we have to compete with uh, TikTok, which makes you, you have to ask, do they think there's existential risk if they don't get these, you know, users back from TikTok? Makes you worry that things are worse here. Otherwise, you know, Meta wouldn't be investing in the metaverse, which is a pivot away from its core business, yeah. and trying to get back customers from TikTok. I, I mean, this is probably extreme, but I'm on TV, so that's what we do. Is this kind of like Facebook's new Coke moment? No, because I don't know that its core business is actually stable. When new Coke went back to the old formula, it had a core business that worked. I'm not sure there's a core business that works anymore at Facebook for Facebook. By the way, you saw the FTC is asking Facebook to pre-approve any bids it makes on acquisitions, which actually is untenable. A company can't you can't wait for the government to decide whether it's allowed to bid on companies. There's a huge competitive disadvantage structurally for Facebook going forward, Meta. Also, I mean, if you think I mean, first off, the fact that the government thinks they can tell private industry what to do, I guess they do. Now you're going to go to some like mid-level commissioner and say, I want to buy this company. And that that commissioner will, is going to leak that news pretty much, you know, don't tell anybody, but Facebook wants to buy so-and-so, right? All right. Uh, what about Apple? What are we getting wrong or what are they getting wrong on Apple? That's a company you like. Yeah, the sentiment has turned decidedly negative, And I think it's really probably on the sort of unimpressive iPhone 14 lineup. I think what people are missing there is, I think advertising, Brian, here could double their services revenue. And advertising in general has higher margins and services. And services at Apple have about 65% margins, which is double their hardware margins. So you can sort of have iPhones not do as well. And if you're adding ad revenue to make up that difference, the profit, the EPS growth um, can far outstrip a great iPhone year. 
Yeah, I mean, this is a really critical point. And, and I want to urge our viewers and listeners to do something that I recently did, which was I went into my little iTunes account and saw what I was paying Apple every month. And the number was shocking. I was like, holy mackerel, we got to cut this down. And they got this new Apple One, which sort of lowers. I bet you you got the, our average CNBC. We're a higher demographic, Laura. I'll bet you they're throwing Apple outside of the phone 50 to 60 bucks a month. And don't yeah. even realize it with news, iTunes, Match, whatever. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I think there's ecosystem lock-in. They spent 40 minutes out of their 90-minute new product commercial this week, last week, I guess, um, doing watches. And they're introducing a high-end watch, which they didn't even give us the price for. But this watch can go to, you know, can replace your dive computer for scuba diving and can go from 130 degrees positive to negative 30 degrees Celsius, you know the price of that watch is going to be enormous, but it's a really smart, you know, now they have a three-product strategy. The watch for your kids, in case you don't want to give your kids an iPhone that allows parents to track exactly where their kids are, <laughs> so long as that watch is on them, the normal watch. And then this very high-end super watch, which is going to really pull the average ARPUs up. And guess what? It works better with an iPhone. So you're going to get ecosystem lock-in into the iPhone. Once you own a watch, you're going to buy an iPhone to talk to it. That's it. Yeah, you buy one, you need the other one. Then, of course, I need the Apple TV. But then, of course, I got to use Apple News. Oh, by the way, the video game subscription. There's your 50 bucks a month. Laura Martin. Good to see you. Always appreciate it. Thank you. All right, let's get now to another metaverse name, and that is Roblox. Shares are up nearly 20 percent of the past week. Investors love the announcement. Parents probably don't. They're bringing ads into their virtual worlds. Now your kid can play Roblox and learn about, you know, psoriasis. Steve Kovac joining us now with the details, the big names ready to buy Bill. So what's my son plays robot. This makes me nervous. So he's sort of walking around his world and he's going to see like a billboard for Coca-Cola. Pretty much. Yeah. Let me break it down Great. for you, Brian. So advertising is coming to the metaverse. Roblox is going to be the first one to really do it. And shares, like you said, spiked Friday after the company unveiled its plans to allow advertising in its game starting next year. Today, Roblox makes money by taking a cut of sales of digital transactions. And this advertising initiative opens up a new avenue of revenue for them, something investors have been waiting for most of the year. The excitement behind this ad product has been behind the run-up of the stock all summer, although it's still down 55% for the year and way off the highs as well. Think of Roblox like Facebook was a decade ago, Brian. Uh, get the users, especially those young ones, the digitally savvy ones early, get them engaged, then let the brands come in and pay to play. There are about 50 million people, Brian, playing on Roblox every day, and already we've seen brands like Spotify, Vans, PacSun, uh, experiment and Roblox and build their own worlds. Now they'll be able to pay to pay to create portals like we're showing right here that transport players to those experiences. And also there's some more traditional advertising like digital billboards in these virtual worlds. Look, it's worth noting Roblox is ahead of Meta's Horizon Worlds on monetization, but it's still way too early to tell how much this will move the needle for Roblox or if these types of ads even work on a 3D metaverse internet. Meta, on the other hand, has the advertising technology foundation Roblox is missing. And still, even if advertising fails at Roblox, CEO Dave Bazuki was optimistic on Squawk Box this morning, saying current businesses uh, uh, selling digital goods will be a multi-billion dollar business, Brian. I mean, if you're going to get kids engaged, you might as well get them early. Candy, exactly. cigarettes, you got to get them going when, you know, right, right. Is anybody pushing back on this? Like the FTC, like, yo, 
Not yet. These and are eight-year-olds. Now, they, your, your graphic said 13 plus. So they will, the ads will only be uh, targeted to 13 and older. How and do they know that? Would you log in? Would you log in? And they're doing but everybody lies. Work. They can lie, just like you can on Instagram. You can lie on Instagram, too, so they need I'm, to work I'm on that. I'm 18 years old. I told CNBC I was 51. <laughs> Did they believe you? No. Okay. <laughs> but what the, what the real deal is, is they... Uh, they're putting uh, gates on here. So if you're 18, so they can create these virtual worlds for age-restricted limits. And but that's if you, what the But if you lie on the, on if the, you lie, then you you're going to get targeted. It up, then but, it doesn't matter. But what you're going to start seeing, I, you said your kids play Roblox. So you, they're going to start seeing experiences where they might be hanging out with their friends in this virtual world. A portal shows up and says, hey, come to McDonald's world instead of playing with your friends. Or just today, Chipotle is letting you build Whoa. burritos in the metaverse. So wow. you can imagine that so you can too. fake eat the fake burrito. Fake How about... I, I, got this. Before you I love this. Metaverse Midland brought to you by Exxon Mobil, right? You go into Midland, Texas, you learn how to drill a well. Just right? like the real thing. Frack. Watch the money come and then sell it digitally to you. And friends. then get yelled at by Congress. Steve exactly. Kovac, thank you very much. Thank Appreciate you. Appreciate it. Wow. All right. Well, investors are cheering the virtual ads. Like Steve just told us, not everybody is buying in. Cowan initiating coverage with a sell, saying the realization of the metaverse is still a decade away in competition. It will be intense. The analyst behind the call joining Power Lunch, by the way, which is the next show. So stick around for like 22 and a half minutes. All right, still ahead on the exchange, Uber CEO Derek Khosrowshahi will join for the annual Goldman Sachs Tech Conference to discuss the trends he is seeing, what is next for the company. DeBose has got him. That's coming up. But first, Oracle not immune to the layoffs sweeping the tech sector, letting hundreds of employees go last month. The report after the bell today will get the important numbers. Frank Holland, next. All right, welcome back. Let's call this Old Tech on Deck. Oracle reporting first quarter earnings after the bell today. Frank Collin joining us now with the key factors to watch. What are we watching, Frank? Well, Brian, a lot to watch. First, let's start with the stock performance. Oracle remains well off its highs, but shares doubled, have doubled the S&P since this last report, even as it faced macro headwinds and some tailwinds that could really play out in various ways. Now, during their fiscal quarter, the dollars gained almost 7%. Those gains accelerating after the company guided for a 3 to 4% impact on revenue from the dollar. Remember, Oracle gets 44% of overall sales from Europe, the Middle East, and Asia, creating a lot of questions about the willingness of those customers to spend with those lingering recession concerns. Also, the company has guided for a $100 million loss due to suspending Russia operations as well. The cloud transition, especially with human resource or HR and enterprise resource planning or ERP, on the contrary, that's expected to be a tailwind for Oracle. ERP covers financials, manufacturing and supply chain. With so many companies bringing workers back to the office, eyeing layoffs, including Oracle itself. You mentioned that a second ago, Brian, as well as changing suppliers or regions they're sourcing from. Demand for HR and ERP is expected to grow. But the 30% guide for cloud growth for fiscal year 23 from CEO Safra Katz represents a major acceleration from fiscal year 2022. The Cerner acquisition's impact on earnings and guidance will also be closely watched. Many of the layoffs in August reportedly came from that Cerner business. A mix of supposed headwinds and tailwinds could also have a big impact on guidance. Something to watch. This is their Q1 report. And we'll see you tonight. Closing bell overtime. Absolutely. Maybe a little fast money action. We'll find out. Frank, welcome back. All Thanks, right. Brian. Up next, Uber having a monster run over the past three months, but the stock's still down 20 so percent so far this year. CEO Derek Kosmashahi will join Debose for an exclusive interview. Next. Let's talk Uber. Shares up nearly 60% just since July 1st as folks get back to travel and leisure post-pandemic. Also, their, their rates have really gone up. 
Uber beat the street on revenue estimates. It reported $382 million in free cash flow for the first time ever last month. But let's be clear, still a lot of headwinds facing the company on its path to profitability. Let's bring in our own Deirdre Bosa along with Uber CEO Dara Khosrowshahi. Deirdre, of course, the host of Tech Check. Take it away, Dee. Brian, thank you very much. And Dara, I'm thrilled that you could join us. Thanks for making the time. Thank you for having me. It was about four months ago you sent this internal email to all of your employees talking about what you called a seismic market shift. You wanted to put a greater emphasis on profitability. What steps did you take back then that have put you in the position you are today? You were just on stage saying that you haven't really felt these re- recessionary impacts so far. Well, I think it's, it's important to know that even before I sent the memo, we had a real focus in terms of efficiency, cost, getting to profitability, getting to free cash flow profitability. Uh, and so the company was already tuned in the right way. Uh, we were much stricter about headcount growth. We were looking at marketing efficiency, where to pull back marketing efficiency, where to lean in it as well. And the business was really executing well. But what I saw was that even though we were executing well, the market was changing and it was changing so fast and good was no longer good enough. You had to do great in terms of both top line growth and bottom line growth. And for us, Uber, it's an incredible rally culture. I needed the company united, focused on driving profitability as well. We did just that. And what you're seeing now is in the last quarter, we talked about 7% of gross bookings showing up in terms of EBITDA. Uh, We actually delivered 12%. So while our target was seven, we delivered, uh, yeah. we delivered 12%. And that was the theme, which is good enough isn't good enough in this marketplace. You know, interest rates are increasing. Mm-hmm. You're swimming upstream. You just have to go harder, and we're in a great position to do so. And, you know, on Tech Check, we talk a lot about demand, right? And against this tougher economic backdrop, you guys are actually seeing demand continue. The momentum continues. What about on the inflation front, though? Um, consumers have sometimes noted that prices have become expensive, especially compared to pre-pandemic. Do you anticipate them ever getting to the level they were years ago, pre-pandemic, sort of how customers maybe knew Uber at the beginning? So I think on the demand front, first of all, you're absolutely right, which is demand uh, could be getting weaker. But for us, what we're seeing is we're seeing this secular shift from demand for retail, you know, Target, Walmart, some of the other retailers talked about some weakness, shift to demand for services. Uh, we're at a big conference now. Everyone's in person. The U.S. Open, you know, was yeah. record uh, in terms of uh, people going to that U.S. Open. So more and more people are going out, spending oh, yeah. on services, going out in the real world. And that's been a real tailwind for us. In terms of inflation, you know, I think inflation, it's everywhere. So it's the price of a car, price of gas. Thank God it's getting a little yeah. bit better. Your groceries, et cetera. We're just a part of that basket in terms of spend. So we're not seeing spend move up or down. We're not seeing any signs of weaknesses one way or the other. If anything, 72% of drivers in the U.S. are saying that one of the considerations of their signing up to drive on Uber was actually inflation. Life is getting more expensive. They need to Mm -hmm. uh, pay extra for their groceries. So on the supply side, we may be actually benefiting from the inflationary environment. I want to dig into the financials a little bit because, as you said, you've always put the emphasis on profitability. We used to sit here and talk about adjusted EBITDA. Now we're talking free cash flow. You delivered positive free cash flow last quarter. Um, However, 
we looked through the results, stock-based compensation was actually greater than free cash flow. Stock-based compensation, $470 million versus free cash flow of $382 million. Now, critics of this metric, likes of Dan Loeb and others, they argue that if you're not offsetting that stock-based compensation um, with share repurchases, you're actually destroying wealth. How would you respond to that? So I think the first, uh, first order bit for us is to have free cash flow that's higher than stock-based compensation. And I think that we're well on there? that course. Absolutely. Like, it, 100% we're, so we're going to get there. As a percentage, you think that nominally and as a percentage of free cash flow, you think that stock-based compensation will decrease? We th- as a percentage of free cash flow, absolutely. If you think about, uh, we, for example, set a target of $5 billion on an annual basis for EBITDA in 2024. Usually, free cash flow trails EBITDA by about a billion. So it should be four plus billion dollars of free cash flow on uh, on an annualized basis, which is a billion per quarter. So that math alone gets you gets will get us to be well above stock based compensation uh, stock based comp. How we allocate that free cash flow, how we use it, is yet to be determined. But I do think that stock buybacks especially at these kinds of prices, will be a very attractive place for us to put our cap. Right. I was going to ask you about the dilutive part of that and yeah. many more shares outstanding, especially some of the M&A activity that you guys have done. Um, are you thinking about buybacks now? Would you be able to say when you guys might be in a position to do so? We're definitely thinking about buybacks. For us, the priority right now is to get to investment grade credit ratings as it relates to our, to our debt. Having access to cash flow, liquidity, and both certain and uncertain marketplaces is super, super important. Once we get to that investment grade, we're going to look to allocate our free cash flow, which is going to be substantial. And I think buybacks are definitely going to be on the docket. Okay. And one more question on stock-based compensation. How is it going with recruiting and retention? I was looking at um, the 2021 10K, 50 million shares granted at a weighted average of more than $49. Your stock has rebounded, certainly over the last few months, still remains well lower of those levels. So how is sort of, how are you talking to workforce when they're looking at sort of RSUs at a much higher level? So I think that one of the goals of RSUs is to align employee incentives along with shareholder incentives. Uh, so I think some other companies have talked about re-upping on an equity basis. We want to earn our way there, right? It's, we owe it to our shareholders to earn our way there. I'm a big shareholder and, and I'm an employee at the same time. And what we're seeing in terms of retention rates are employee retention uh, is actually looking very positive. You know, Uber is in this environment, we're winning, we're driving top line growth. The last uh, quarter gross bookings growth up 33%, profitability growing, free cash flow for the first time. Yeah. We'll get to gap profitability. So the story and the setting for a talented engineer to be able to innovate and know that it's going to be a great platform to build on and the impact that we have on the world, it's all adding up to a pretty attractive place to work, and it's definitely showing in the retention rates. Finally, Dara, you just passed a milestone yourself. Five years yes. since you took the reins. Feels like before. yesterday. <laughs> I'm sure. How do you judge uh, your success so far? Uh, incomplete. I've got more to do. I feel great uh, about the business uh, in terms of the seat that I'm setting on. I feel really terrific in terms of the cultural changeover of this company. This company has always been a leader. It's been incredibly innovative. Uh, but I think that the impact that we can have on the world in terms of drivers loving our platform, in terms of our working with uh, regulators, in terms of electrifying transportation and making it safer than anyone else, 
I've got more work to do there. And you'll be here for the next five years? The trend is our friend. Yes, absolutely. Okay. If my board will have me. Definitely. My last question. The previous CEO, Travis Kalanick, he's raising money for Microsoft. He's expanding Cloud Kitchens. Um, you guys are actually, you have talked to him, right? Do you envision yourselves working with what he's trying to create? Does, what sort of the synergy is there? Well, we want to work with every restaurant provider, grocery chain, you know, any retailer. Cloud Kitchens looks to be a super innovative idea. We have a relationship with Cloud Kitchens, just like we have other retail so relationships. See the relationship deepening? I think we want to deepen our relationship with every single retailer out there, and Cloud Kitchens yeah. you know, looks like a pretty innovative one. Well, Dara, thank you so much for being with us. Great talk out there. Thank Hope you very much. Appreciate it. Brian, I'll send it back to you. All right, a lot covered there. Deirdre, thank you very much, along with Uber CEO Dara Kosper Shahi. All right, up next. We're going to dig into the outsized moves in energy today, why oil is back up near 90 and natural gas in Europe is actually down. Important updates coming up. Look at the price of Dutch natural gas down negative 6.66% in red. That's ominous. We're back after this. All right, time now for an important update on energy prices, both here and in Europe. First, let's focus on Europe, where there is some good news. The price of spot natural gas continues to drop. It is at the lowest level in a couple of months. Yes, it is still massively elevated from a year ago, but overall down more than $150 per contract from its peak just two months ago. Two reasons for the drop. Number one, German and European storage levels are ahead of schedule. That is thankfully reducing demand expectations in the near term. On a bigger level, though, it's because some very optimistic news about how Ukrainian forces are crushing parts of the Russian offensive and even have them on the run and retreat in some areas. Perhaps the walls are finally closing in on Putin and his time as dictator may be coming to an end. The other story, though, is on oil, which is going in the other direction and rising again. A move higher is likely because if the war hopefully does come to an end soon, we could see more renewed economic activity in Europe. It's also the same time that American oil production appears to have leveled off with new drilling rig counts in Texas actually down recently. And then, of course, there is the not-so-small matter of having to refill what could be nearly 200 million barrels back into our strategic petroleum reserve. And unless something changes, Europe is still likely to impose some kind of price cap on Russian oil, to which Putin is warned he will retaliate. Reminder, the full European sanctions designed to knock Russian oil off the market are still scheduled to kick in on December 5th. You're going to want to circle that date on your calendar. All in all, though, some very positive news out of Ukraine. Let's hope the madman in Moscow is long gone by those December 5th Thanks, sanctions. All right, there's your oil price chart here. We're going to leave you with a market that is up despite September being historically the worst month. It's actually been a good year. We're up. We're in the green. See you tomorrow. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.